Good afternoon. You are listening to Ross FM 94.6. I'm your host, Kira Lawless, and this is my co-host, Susie Savannah Hogan. And we are here to bring you today Raiders of the Lost Worlds live every Friday between 2 and 3 p.m. where we dive deep into archaeology and mythology. And today, I have to say, we're in a beautiful location. We're here in Roscommon Town located in the Abbey Hotel. We're having lovely coffee and we're joined by Kieran O'Connor, who is an ar- part of the archaeology department at the National University of Galway. He's an archaeologist in his field. And we're going to be looking at today Cronogues, which are artificial islands located mainly in at natural lakes and locks. And we're going to be looking at elite Gaelic residents, really. That's correct, Kira. So we're going to have a f- fascinating chat with uh, Kieran today. And we're going to talk all about these amazing residences of the Cranog with Kieran O'Connor. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm absolutely so excited to hear all he has to say and that in-depth knowledge to really give us a deeper understanding and perspective of what it was really like back then in that act of creation with these Cranogs and how they lived. So I'm sitting here, and you're all very welcome, in the lovely uh, gardens of the Abbey Hotel in Roscommon. It's beautiful and sunny overhead. Uh, I've just had a lovely lunch in there, really fantastic food. And I'm here with my guest today, which is Kieran O'Connor from the archaeology department in what was formerly known as NUIG. So I'm wondering, Kieran, if you could clarify uh, the university's name now before we get on to our topic today, which will be Cranogues and what they are. So first of all, NUIG is no longer NUIG. No, yeah, it rebranded last year as the University of Galway. In 1996, um, the then University College Galway, or UCG, rebranded as NUI Galway. And then last year, NUI Galway rebranded again as the University of Galway. So, you know, over the last 30 years or so, um, the institution I work for has had three different names. Um, I hope that clarifies matters. But anyway, it's now the University of Galway. Yeah, Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, so our topic today is Cranogues. Can you tell our audience who may not know what they are, what in particular a Cranogue is? Yeah, okay. A Cranogue is a art- small artificial island out in a lake. Now, in t- today's terms, when you look out, particularly on smaller lakes, you see a small island covered in trees. Very, it's very, very likely that that is actually an artificial island, a type of archaeological monument known as the Cranog. In terms of the way Cranogs were constructed, usually a dump of stone and earth was placed out in a relatively shallow area of the loch, a lake, and an artificial habitation platform of about 20 metres, 25 metres, was created above the water level. When Cranogues were originally in use, you would have had a palisade, a wooden palisade, either an oak palisade, defensible oak palisade of oak timbers, or a thick post and wattle fence around the edge of the Cranog. And then in the interior, you would have had a building or two, again, usually made of wood or post and wattle, which is a form of timber building. But occasionally, I do know examples, particularly in Roscommon, of of where small mortared stone um, 
uh, built houses were were put on on these cranogs. So that's basically what a cranog is. So I spoke just again an artificial island out in a lake upon which um, ha- have, you know houses were constructed when they were in use and with a defensive palisade around uh, their edges. Okay. Brilliant. Wow. That's um, so for anyone that that you know you've never seen a cranog before that'll give you an idea of perhaps what to look for in 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 a lake um so with that in mind what type of numbers do we we see for this in the archaeological record in ireland yeah there's about um a thousand five hundred uh cranogs actually recognized to date by irish by irish archaeologists north and south of the border so 1,500. Now, saying all of that, I think when I was in college, we'd recognised about 1,000 to 1,200 cranogs, and m- many more have been identified in those um, years since. And it's interesting. So cranogs, new cranogs turn up quite regularly. Now, for example, a few weeks ago, I was actually canoeing with a Canadian canoe, very unsteady, I might had um, Canadian canoe uh, on Temple House Lake near Ballymote and I actually found or uh, should I say crashed into uh, what what appears to be an unrecognised uh, cranog. One cranog is, lo- is recognised on that lake but this appears to be a second one. So new cranogs turn up the whole time. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, 1,500 cranogs and counting. You know, so more will turn up. More will turn up, I think, yeah. Wow, that's quite uh, quite the perspective when you think about that and that more are still appearing all the time. So with that in mind then, where would you mostly find these cranogs in Ireland? Yeah, good question. Okay, again, most cranogs are to be found in the Drumlin Belt. And the Drumlin Belt, for those of you who remember from geography lessons in school, stretches from Mayo across South Sligo, North Roscommon, South Leitrim, into Cavan, into Monaghan, north of the border, Fermanagh in particular, maybe South Tyrone, South Armagh, and into County Down. And if, if you, again, if you remember from geography lessons in school, Drumlins, those little hills, Drumlin, I suppose, you know, in Irish means little hills, I suppose, you have small lakes, small lochs in between the Drumlins. And very often, uh, cranogs are located in these small lakes. Now, saying all of that, our larger lakes tend not to have cranogs. Why? Because those larger lakes, anybody who's been out on one of those larger lakes will know that conditions can become quite stormy. And so the cranogs would have been swept away in storms and things like that. So that's why they tend to be located in uh, smaller drumlin locks, very quite small drumlin locks. However, in some bigger locks, like, for example, Loch Gara, on the Sligo-Roscommon border or Loch Key, you do find some cranogs, but invariably they're not out on the main body of the lake. They're in sheltered inlets, if you like, of those lakes. So in a way, the principle still stands. They're located either in small lakes or if they are located in um, bigger lakes, they're in 
uh, small, you know, they're in inlets, sheltered inlets of these larger lakes. That's really interesting. So we're going to start drilling into to Cranogs a little bit deeper. So, Kieran, you were telling us uh, about their numbers and what they are, but what was their actual function? And perhaps tell us a bit more about the dates that you find okay. in associated with these. Yeah, let, let's talk about the dates for, first of all. Now, again, when I, I was in college way back in the early 80s, which seems like yesterday, but it was a long time ago, um, basically, Cranogs were seen as dating primarily to the early medieval period, between about 500 and 1,000 to 1,100, 1,100 AD. But we now know, you know, from, from work that has been done over the last 30 years or so, that a lot of Cranogs continue to be occupied right down until the first years of the 17th century. In other words, not so long ago, maybe 400 years ago. Um, this this is quite clear because we have historical references to uh, Cranogs continuing to be occupied beyond 1100. We have dendrochronological dates, radiocarbon dates. We have excavated evidence and even pictorial evidence from the late 16th and early 17th century. So certainly Cranogs were, many, many Cranogs were built during the period from, and occupied, during the period from 500 or so, circa 500 AD to 1100 AD, loads of them continue to be occupied. They may have been built during early medieval times, but they continue to be occupied beyond 1100, right down to uh, around 1600, even a few years later, 1600 AD. Now, when were the earliest Cranogs? Now, again, as I said a couple of minutes ago, when I was in college, Cranogs were seen purely or largely as a feature of the early medieval period, 500 AD or so to 1100 AD. I keep saying, saying that. But work by various scholars, particularly the Swedish archaeologist Christina Friedengren, um, has shown that some Cranogs, our earliest Cranogs tend to date or could date to as early as the late Bronze Age, maybe 600, 700, 800 uh, BC uh, through the Iron Age uh, in places like Lochgara where she carried out most of her research. So, you know, they're a long-lived, if you like, feature of the Irish landscape. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's really quite interesting because I've noticed, uh, say, in reading, uh, Scotland, uh, research done in Scotland would uh, say that the Cranogs have been in continuous use since the Iron Age and perhaps a bit earlier. Um, so I, I think being that they're our close cousins, I find it quite fascinating to think that these there are people, vast parts of the population living on lakes at this time. So with Again, with that in mind, then what do you think then is the function? Is it is it defensive? Is it just what they've decided to do? Is it a lifestyle um, sort of choice? Yeah, no, it, 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 a bit bit of all of the above. I mean, certainly th- there's a defensive element to Cranogs, and for example, Geraldus Cambrensis, the Anglo-Norman commentator who 
um, wrote in the 1180s, just after the Anglo-Norman invasion, tells us that the Irish used islands, in, in his words, but Cranogues, for both defence and habitation. So our excavated evidence is showing that Cranogues were both defensive, you know, they were, they were built to defend people against attack, but they're also inhabited by people. Now, again, from what we can see, and there is a bit of a debate about this, but my own feeling would be that they're actually inhabited by, during the, uh, by the elite in society. Early medieval kings, later medieval lords, later medieval gentry. So they're, they're a habitation of the um, elite in society. Now, you mentioned something about lifestyle. What's quite interesting, when we look at, say, later medieval, 12th century, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century, Gaelic Ireland, the parts of Ireland that remained under the control of the Gaelic elite, we know, as I said a minute, few minutes ago, that the um, many members of that elite in Gaelic society, Gaelic lords, continued to use Cranogues. Yes, for defence and habitation, but there seems to have been um, a deep interest by them in the past. They seem to have had a form of lordship that constantly referenced ancestors, uh, that constantly referenced their ancestors, real or imagined, to give themselves power in the present. And it's possible that one of the reasons why Cranogues continue to be occupied for so long and are part of the later medieval landscape, um, particularly in the 15th to 16th century or so, is a f- that they're basically part, a physical part of a display that referenced the past. In other words, they were deliberately used because they looked archaic. Um, and that they were locations for feasting where Gaelic lords entertained other Gaelic lords, uh, harpers, um, poets recited poetry, talking about the, an- the great ancestors of the Gaelic lord in quest- question. So that's another function. So I think for most of the time that Cranogues were in use, they were used for defence and habitation. But maybe later on, they're, you know, they were used in a d- physical display of lordship that referenced the past uh, to give th- th- those Gaelic lords power and prestige uh, in the present. Now, again, people might find that, you know, well, what does he mean by that? Well, think in the 19th century, a lot of uh, gentry deliberately made their residences look older. Now, for example, we're here at uh, outside the Abbey Hotel in Roscommon, and it, the older part of it, which dates to the 19th century, has sort of castellated features. Well, that's, you know, again, you know, again the gentry in the 19th century um, referencing the medieval past to emphasise the antiquity of their line, of their ancestry and things like that. So something like that might have been happening with Cranogues, particularly towards the end of their use, a deliberate attempt to make them look old-fashioned, to 
emphasize a, 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 a lord, a, a type of um, prestige and status that constantly referenced the past. Yeah, that's actually quite fascinating. So there was this real idea of, of with that prestige, I perhaps would imagine a sense of power and I guess uh, a sense of the word that's coming to mind is like an othering from the average person in their community, so to speak. So there is, I guess, a, a function of hierarchy going on in communities then with these people wanting to create themselves as these high status, as you said, lords of and who rule this this place or from this seat of power. Um, so if with that in mind, then what, what again, what what do the landscapes then look like with this seat of power, so to speak? Yeah, again, again, a, a, good, a good question. Again, when I went to college, we tended to look at monument types like Cranogues or we'll say ring forts in isolation, okay? But in more recent years, you know, over the last few decades or so, um, we, we tend to try and study a monument within its uh, contemporary landscape. Now, Again, we, we didn't get onto it, uh, you know, a few minutes ago when we were talking about function. But as I said, Cranogues were lordly residences, elite residences, but they were also the centres of landed estates. Whether this is the early medieval period or the high medieval period or the late medieval period or even prehistory, uh, the, the, the member of the elite, the elite family living out on a Cranogue would or using a cranog um, would have farmed land in the general vicinity of the cranog. Now, obviously, you can't have farm buildings and you know administrative buildings out on a lake. It's difficult. So, what we've noticed over the years is that there that ring forts often occur in or for that matter at a later date moated sites often occur in association with cranogs on the shore nearby and so we presume then that the that monument type the ring fort again palisaded enclosure with buildings within its interior and or uh, well, somewhat later date the moated site acted as the dry land residence the dry land farm center and administrative center uh, for the lords who lived out on the Cranog. Okay, so, so basically you're talking about uh, dry land enclosures being used as farm centres and administrative centres associated with the Cranog out in the lake. Now, not all of these associated um, dry land sites were defended in the form of a ring fort or a moated site. We have an, a few examples where they just appear to have been a, 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 a conglomeration of wooden buildings without defences on the shore opposite the lake. Okay, what else can we say? Well, we presume the farmed landscape occurred around these cranogs and uh, dry land um, enclosures. So a farmed landscape with an emphasis on uh, cattle farming, dairying, Mixed farming, I suppose, but with an emphasis on uh, dairying and beef cattle. 
in a number of places, we have churches in association, either chapels of ease or parish churches associated with Cranoaks. And there are hints that little nucleated clusters of houses, perhaps uh, lived in by ordinary people, also occurred close to Cranoaks and their dry land, associated dry land sites. And this makes sense because the Lord the lordly family associated with the Cranog and dryland enclosures or dryland sites would have needed ordinary workers to work their lands, um, you know, servants, etc., etc. So, you know, it should come as no surprise then uh, when we find some evidence for, you know, small hamlet-like clusters of houses for ordinary people in their vicinity. That's actually, you answered a question I had brewing there because it was when you started talking about the ring forts or the moated enclosures, I mean, that was what I had wondered. Were they for the the Lord's estates or were they part of like a little hamlet? So, you know, you sort of answered that there. Um, So just to give people an idea, like how big would these areas have been? You mean in terms of the estates or... Yeah, I guess in terms of the estate or if it was like a little hamlet, what sort of area would it cover? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's hard to say, but maybe 10 small houses, you you know, over over a couple of hundred metres. But the estate, you know, associated with the Cranoke of of any date might have been one or two townlands in in size. Um, But but presumably, the as I say, the elite who lived out on Cranoke's or used Cranoke's, perhaps you know, just just to kind of go back a bit, using both the dryland residents and the Cranoke in association with one another, you know, perhaps, you know, for all, I I mean, it's hard to know, but perhaps the Cranoke dwellers, you know, actually mainly lived on the dryland residents, but only went out to the Cranoke in times of trouble or for feasting purposes at a later date for the reasons I gave you know, you know, earlier, you, you know, so um, saying all of that, the excavated evidence does suggest uh, a lot of habitation out on the on the Cranog, uh, you know, so, so, you know, we're, we're a little uncertain at present, but yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. So another question that's coming up, and, and I may be getting some of this a little bit skewiff, but would the, that sort of Cranog landscape I guess, package that comes with this little hamlet and the Cranog on the river and then the dry land features. Are they like a blueprint of the domain landscape or is are they influ- influencing what the Cranog landscape starts to look like with this domain landscape that starts to come in in the later sort of period in Ireland? Yeah, yeah. you mean is there a link between, we'll say, what they call New English or Anglo-Irish estates yeah. in the... Um, 18th and 19th century the answer is yes if 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 you look at a number of um places like okay if you're in eastern ireland very often there's a anglo-norman castle associated with or beside the site of a later anglo-irish estate center but in large parts of midland and western ireland you get that late medieval tower houses beside um, later, you know, post-medieval gentry houses, but very often you see a Cranog, you know, there. Mm. Now, for example, at say Castle Cool, the famous Castle Cool in County Fermanagh, 
you have a very, very fine late 18th century house, one of the finest late 18th century houses in, I'd say, in the British Isles, okay? But you, there, there clearly was a plantation castle there uh, built in the 17th century. But what was there beforehand? The answer is a Cranog, possibly associated with the Ocassidy family. Um, and the Cranog uh, can just about be made out in the lake in front of the um, that great house at Castle Cool. Okay, so, you know, another great place would be, say, Barons Court in County Tyrone. Mm. Again, you know, you have, you know, this depth of lordship. You have a very fine late 18th century house lived in by the Abercorns. They, the Abercorns... Uh, ancestor built a plantation castle at Derry Woon nearby, but then you have an O'Neill Cranog out on the loch yes. in front of it. So th- there seems to be this uh, depth of lord, you know, depth of kind of lordship, I suppose, stretching well back into the early medieval period at places like Castle Cool and and. Um, uh, at Barons Court, but also say places like Rockingham and County Roscommon, uh, Strokesdown House, you know, places like that. So, so yeah, that was actually a good question. You, you know, uh, the, the sorry, the, um, you, you know, w- w- what was picked out many, many centuries ago as the s- site of an elite residence influenced later uh, generations um, to place gentry residences at these places so there is there is a link there between what we now see in the countryside in terms of gentry residences with early very early um, elite residences of a thousand to even two thousand years ago yeah yeah that's quite interesting and there's this interesting dovetailing then of architecture with uh, uh, cultural shifts and uh, thought forms and ideas of what power and prestige are so to finish up, Kieran, uh, we, we've talked about Cranogues, what they are, their, their landscape features, the, the timeline of the Cranog in the Irish landscape. So there's really two more questions that are really important. Are they, I, I mentioned there's uh, evidence of them in Scotland. Is there anywhere else where Cranogues appear? And then I guess, you know, what are the ones here in Roscommon? Yeah, okay, well... Cranogues, as we know them, really only occur in Ireland and uh, Scotland. You know, again, that that's interesting. Was the concept of Cranogues brought over to Scotland by those Irish settlers at, in the earlier part of the early medieval period, Dalriada? That's that's um, you know that's a question probably. But in, interestingly, there is one Cranog in Wales, in Clangorse Lake, uh, excavated by Alan Lane and Ewan Campbell, uh, both of whom I know very well. And it is a straightforward Irish Cranog. Well, very interestingly, during the period that the Cranog was built, there is a marriage between that local Welsh king and an Irish uh, princess. So there, there is a direct link there, if you like, between Ireland and that one Cranog uh, in Wales, Clan Gorse. And that's kind of interesting. So I see them as really being a sort of Gaelic, a feature of, if you like, uh, you know, Gaelic Ireland and Gaelic uh, Scotland. Um, 
that would be my opinion with the with the one Cranog in Wales. Wow, that's actually quite fascinating. So now Roscommon, let's because we're here in this wonderful wonderful county. Where uh, and what type of Cranogs do we have here in Roscommon? Yeah, well, I think we have at least 80 Cranogs within the county. Again, most of them are in the north of the county with a lot around Strokestown in, those, in, in that Lakeland area of uh, uh, Roscommon Ros, Ros in Strokestown, sort of Kilmore area. Now, interestingly, we have historical references to Cranogs being in use during the 13th century, for example, in Kilmore, I think it's Kilglasslock, yeah, Kilglasslock uh, in Roscommon, associated with the O'Hanley family. The Cranog at the eastern end of Loch Mila, very close in North Roscommon, very close to my house, is actually associated with the McManuses of Tir Tuhill. Um, we have the Ardakillan Cranogs are associated with the O'Connor dynasty, okay, O'Connors, and then in the 15th century with O'Connor Don, after that split in the O'Connor in the O'Connor uh, family. Okay, so what else now can we, can we say about uh, um, the famous Rock of Loch Key, again associated with the uh, McDermott family, is a, I, I think you could call it originally a Cranogue, it's part natural and part artificial. Uh, so that it's, so we, we, ac- we actually know, know some of the families that are associated with uh, Roscommon uh, Cranogs and things like that. Some of the uh, Cranogs as well, um, you can still see the Palisades in the water, or, or the bases of the Palisades in the waters around the Cranog. Uh, for example, in Loch O'Flynn, um, and also in Loch Mila, the Cranog at the eastern end of Loch Mila. Now you're going to say, well, how could that be? Well, part of the reason is that, is that water, because, because oxygen doesn't get at it, water will actually preserve organic materials, okay? I think it's an anaerobic... Yes, yeah, Su- Susie's actually nodding. I can hardly pronounce the word, but anaerobic, anaerobic condition, environment. environment. Yeah. So, so basically, organics are preserved in, in, a, in, a, in a watery environment. So we can actually still see, um, uh, you know, the, the, the palisades that once occurred around these Roscommon uh, Cranogs. Now, my own feeling, from what I can remember, and it's, it's 30 years since I was out on the... Um, Loch O'Flynn Cranog. I think that was probably a post and wattle palisade, while the palisade at uh, in Loch Mila was an oak plank built palisade. Okay, so Roscommon Cranogs are great. Okay, they're yeah, they are great. They're actually um, amazing. So, you know, Kieran's given us a few examples there of of where you could go and see one. I really encourage people to try to see if you can spot them out in lakes. You know, you may or may or may not be right, but it's really fun. I know I regularly go out and think, oh, is that a Cranogue? That could be a Cranogue. But then it helps you to look at the whole landscape feature around you. So in the break there, Kieran and I were having a little chat uh, around where I live um, in Lochree, there's an 
Anglo-Norman Castle, there seems to be what looks like a cranog out in the lake, quite associated with it. And if you remember from before the break, Kieran was talking about how a lot of these places would have cited themselves with the prestige and the honour and the longevity of what was associated with the ancestors that went before. Um, So just to finish up, Kieran, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that um, and how that relates to, I guess, the the longevity of the Cranogue in the Irish landscape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking, you know, a Cranogue. I mean, my my interpretation is that many Cranogues were built during early medieval times or even earlier, but they would continue to be occupied, as I said earlier, up to you know, circa 1600, 1610 or so uh, in many parts of Ireland. So, you know, you're talking at least a thousand years of occupation, if if not longer, uh, you, you know, okay. But the, the other thing, I mean, two things that we talked about earlier was the fact that, you, you know, the, the, the site gains prestige, you know, having been occupied for so long but also the landscape is farmed and farmed well around it. And of course, later people coming in will say after the Cromwellian wars or after the Williamite confiscations and things like that, of course, you know, Anglo-Irish landowners are attracted to such locations. So like in some cases, you must be talking, you know, the reason why a big house... um, is located in a certain location today isn't just because somebody made that decision back in the 18th century but because um, a, a member of the elite maybe a thousand a thousand five hundred years ago actually chose that spot as the location for um, their their cranog or, or at a later period their you know their castle or whatever so that that's re- I always find that amazing that there's always um, you know, an earlier history or archaeology to an 18th or 19th century gentry house, you know. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Kieran. So on that note, uh, we can look at these Cranogues as, you know, you talk about in Ireland the the prestige of the, your road frontage. Well, this was the lake frontage of, of uh, the archaeological history of Ireland. So uh, we're going to thank Kieran and... As always, a pleasure, Kieran. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks yourself. That was great. Yeah, and brilliant. And we'll get you back again. And guys, that was Kieran O'Connor from the archaeology department at the National University of Galway um, archaeologist. So definitely be sure, guys, to tune in next week. And we'll be diving a little bit deeper into different topics in the field of archaeology. And do note that all of our interviews here at Ross FM are podcasted on our website www.rossfm.ie so you can catch up on all the latest shows with Raiders of the Lost Worlds and indeed also do take note that our 50-50 draw will be going live in the next few minutes so if you haven't got your ticket be sure to get your ticket now or indeed enter next week all details can be found on our website where there's an online option for payment and thank you so much for tuning in today that's all from me Kira Lawless and my co-host Susie Savannah Hogan so stay inquisitive and stay curious people absolutely and keep diving deep into the world of archaeology and mythology